This week on the Rail Splitter podcast, we are doing our third installment of the Rail Splitter book club, where we are looking at Tried by War by James McPherson. Welcome to the Rail Splitter Podcast, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. I am your co-host, Mary, and joining me tonight is Rail Splitter Nick. What up, Rail Split Nash? Those of you who are eagerly waiting for the NHL playoffs to start with all 24, or not all teams, but 24 teams, Blackhawks have a chance. Chance to win the cup, baby. Thank you. <laughs> and Rail Splitter Jeremy. Uh, whatever that was. Uh, <laughs> hello. <laughs> Primary League's coming back on June 17th, so we got that going for us, too. Um, anyway, yeah, good to be here. Happy to do the book club. Nice to be able to see everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's like we've been on a roll. We've been knocking out one episode a week since uh, since Rona started. I prefer right. COVID. COVID. I like how it sounds better. I might name my kid COVID. I'm just joking. <laughs> Yeah, that wouldn't be good. Wasn't no. there somebody that called their kid, like, had twins and one was called COVID and the other was called Corona? I I think I saw that on social media. I hope that's not true. Yeah, actually. I hope not either. Um, Yeah, anyway. So how are you two holding up in, you're not really in isolation anymore, are you? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Nick's off, man. He's, he's This is the third day of summer for Nick. Oh, wow. Yeah, I keep forgetting you guys, like, your school year is different from ours. Like, ours goes till June. No, uh, I was I was very Nick-esque in my work last week by uh, being up in the middle of the night working on a video project for the school. Um, very, very Stangy-like in that regard. Turned out well. Um, Turned out good. Yeah, you know, um, I could have used Jerry's help, but I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at sound editing at all. Um, and it's always slightly awkward when you're uh, recording the sound with your immediate supervisor. Like, right. there's only so many times you can say, like, closer to the mic, <laughs> get right up on that mic. So, no, it was good. Um, so, yeah, so we uh, had a virtual graduation, which uh, went off pretty well. Nice. And, um, yeah, so. Um, but, yeah, now it's uh, summertime, plan for next year. You didn't get any complaints about it, did you? Not, not a one. No, well, all, all I would... positive. We yeah, had one, like a couple people, like my name is this, and wow, like yeah. we tried as hard as we could. Yeah. You know? So, and I mean, I, that's the legitimate complaint. I don't yeah. want to brush those yeah. folks off, but yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully next year things are back to normal. But for now, just <laughs> keep going, or quote unquote, whatever the new normal will be. But for now, we're happy to keep bringing you guys these episodes, and we've got few exciting things to bring you over the next few weeks uh but tonight uh, not that this isn't exciting i mean it's book club it's still pretty cool because it's abraham lincoln um we are discussing chapters seven to ten of tribe by war by james m mcpherson um so we are just gonna dive right in tonight into chapter seven which is called lee's army and not richmond is your true objective um actually the the one thing that i really love about the book is the quotes that are at the beginning of each chapter. I don't know. I imagine it kind of like a documentary where it, you know, each episode of the documentary is like just that quote. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. 
So this chapter covers January 1863 to July the 4th, 1863. And the major battles that are covered are, of course, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, and Vicksburg. And he also discusses the issues he has with the Copperhead, Clement C. Vallandigham of Ohio, who I think we've mentioned him a few times on the show before. He's a bit of a bastard. (laughs) 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 Um, And so while McPherson does give a quick overview of Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, and Vicksburg, um, I like for me personally, I felt like they weren't as well described as the other battles were in the previous chapters. Like for instance, like in Chancellorsville, he doesn't mention the one key point of that, what happens, which is Hooker getting concussed. So Hooker comes away coming, looking like more that he screwed up and he like McPherson leaves that one part out. I don't know. Did you guys notice that in this chapter? Uh, it didn't stand out to me when I was reading, but I mean, you're right. He did not mention it. You know, I, part of the struggle, I think, is, you know, he's trying to talk about Lincoln's relationship with his generals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very easy to get bogged down in the details of each of these battles. Yep. So I, I think he's, you know, trying to walk the tightrope. And obviously, we have a love for Hooker on this oh, yes. uh, podcast. We feel like he gets a bad rap. So. Yep. But I understand, too. Like, it didn't ruin Mm -hmm. the chapter or anything for me. Oh, no. But it does talk a lot about, like, him making a decision to go with Hooker, though. Like, to me, the big thing in this chapter was he's trying to find somebody who's going to take some type of initiative in the East. Yes. And he just can't find it. Um, You know, they're just not getting it. So they keep thinking, like, it's it's a different war. It's a unique war for the North. Mm -hmm. Because... You know, most wars, a lot of times when you're fighting wars, you're defending your homeland, trying to kick somebody out. Well, the North's not trying to do that. A lot of times it's a war of expansion. Well, that's not really what the North's trying to do either. They're trying to subdue this and get rid of this institution of slavery um, as the war of, you know, that becomes the issue as the war uh, progresses. So it's kind of a unique war, and that kind of goes into the quote, too. They don't understand that. You know, if you're trying to defeat a nation— you take out, you know, a capital city makes a huge difference. Yep. That's not necessarily the case in the Civil War. No. Um, so I think that's kind of what the quote gets to here. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this is just like, there's just can't find anybody to no. do it in the East. No, and it's, I really enjoyed McPherson's discussion of the pros and the cons that Lincoln had to weigh with, with taking Hooker on, um, you know, the discussion he had with um, Henry Raymond of the New York Times, where Lincoln said, Hooker does talk badly, but the trouble is he's stronger in the country than any other man. And at this point, Grant is not well, I, I don't think his reputation is enough for Lincoln to be like, yeah, bring that man east. I want him to to do this. He's he's He, I think, wants Grant to stay west, but he wants to find somebody in the east to do it. And like the other thing with Hooker, he's popular with the soldiers. He's got a good record. He's aggressive. And that's what Lincoln needs at this point because he's just got through Fredericksburg with Burnside, who, like, Fredericksburg was an absolute disaster. And he, Lincoln hoped that Hooker could infuse that spirit into the, like, that army, that aggressive spirit into the Army of the Potomac. And, which. Um, Hooker did do. Yeah. I mean, Hooker did bring morale back. He did get everybody, you know, straightened out. Um, it just, when it came to actually, the, you know, the game or the battle, the execution, he just, he fell short. 
Um, how much of that was because of the concussion you received? Well, you know, that's something that's been debated forever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it's not like Lincoln, and he tried to coach him up. He knew he had flaws. You know, he brought him in. He talked to him. He had what Hooker kind of, you know, described as like this fatherly talk to him. Yeah, that letter he sent him, yeah. um, you know, where he's like, I'm going to risk the dictatorship, um, yeah. which shows Lincoln's military geni- genius, as McPherson says that, you know, he's choosing him like Lincoln's choosing him like he chose his cabinet members. It's like, okay, well, yeah, I've had issues with Stanton in the past, but this is where Stanton's strong and I need him on my cabinet. It's like, okay, Hooker's kind of arrogant, but like I need to get shit done. So we'll bring in him and I'm willing to risk whatever it is, you know? Yeah. It's like, dude, I know I've used this analogy before, but it's like being a Bears fan. He's trying to find a damn quarterback and you can't find one. You think you have it, then it's not there. Then you're like, oh, Jay Cutler's good. We can coach him up. And then Jay Cutler's always got a pissy face. And, you know, next thing you know, it doesn't go anywhere. And then he retires. He gets lazy. His wife divorces him. It just spirals out of control. I think that, that sometimes that, in order to take that analogy further, I think Hooker falls into a problem where, like, the reason that. Burnside really Burnside and Hooker both like the reason that they know McClellan was fired is because he wasn't wasn't doing enough wasn't attacking enough wasn't wasn't enough action so then they get promoted feeling that they have a mandate to attack and be aggressive and they keeps and they screw it up all the time so it's like you know if the Bears brought in a quarterback it's like saying well like oh they didn't they didn't pass the ball downfield enough after Trubisky can't throw farther than ten yards so then they just get this gunslinger that just like wings it down the field and it's like picked off all the time it's like well you wanted somebody that would throw and it turns out that I'm not very good at that um, so I think that that's part of the bane of certainly Burnside at Fredericksburg where he's like well I was hired to attack and I'm going to attack and he's like well it's not working you probably shouldn't be doing that right now. Um, or not in that fashion, or realize maybe when it's not working out. And I think Hooker kind of experiences the same way. Although Hooker, I think, was a little bit more unlucky in um, hitting Glee at at just the wrong time, right? You know, Lee just significantly outgeneraled him. I think perhaps more than anyone else. Yeah, well, I think Hooker too, like getting concussed mm-hmm. as well, like where he was basically senseless for most of the day, and then everybody was like, "Well, we don't know." what we're doing and and what to do about it like who knows how that battle had would have went had he not gone concussed like that like we just we don't know but yeah lee definitely did out general him yeah i mean we call lee's masterpiece and you know maybe it had hooker had something to do with it but Mm -hmm. i think him being out general was was much more the focus than you know burnside i think screwed it up whereas hooker was just out general Yep, yeah, it's like the Undertaker when he got the concussion when fighting Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania. <laughs> at WrestleMania, there's our wrestling reference. You know, Brock Lesnar is definitely better than the Undertaker at that point, especially at the age he was at. But you know, maybe you put it up a stronger fight if you didn't get concussed within the first three minutes of the match. Terrible thing, terrible thing. <laughs> I don't know anything about wrestling. I'm so sorry. No comment. I don't even know Sorry. who Canadian wrestlers are. No, it's fine. Oh, the Hart family? Come on. Dude, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. The Hart, Hart family. Okay. Yeah. The Hart family. Yeah. Isn't he like the a sports icon in Canada? Maybe. I don't know. I thought that was Dude, Wayne Gretzky. You don't like hockey. No. Nope. You don't know the Hart Foundation. Um, dude, Chris Jericho, Kenny Omega. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Those are those are guys are both from Winnipeg, by the way. So pretty rare. Yeah, never been there. Uh-huh. 
Um, anyway, so the other... <laughs> Just a little bit of a wrestling digression. Uh, welcome to the Real Splitter Podcast. If this is your first episode, this happens every time. <laughs> if you're going to complain about us, give us a five-star. Yeah, you can bitch all you want, but just give us a five-star rating. Um, so McPherson also discusses something that was um, happening with Fort Sumter and Charleston, which I honestly did not know much about. And that's one thing about McPherson's book is he, I mean, he, it is like a kind of a broad sweeping overview, but he does bring in things that maybe are a little bit lesser known as well and discusses them for a paragraph or two, which I really appreciate because it's like, oh, I didn't know about that. That's, but I think it's good that he does that because he's hitting on everything that Lincoln had going on. So he's not just dealing with the big battles like Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. He's having to deal with these little things, too, like what's happening in Charleston with um, this person named Admiral DuPont, who felt that the Confederate defenses were too strong for, for the this attack by the Union to succeed down there. And then Lincoln eventually goes and compares DuPont to McClellan. And at that point, like, I wondered anyway if um, Lincoln was regretting keeping McClellan in for as long as he did, that's kind of the way McPherson had written that. Cause there's a couple times in this chapter where um, Lincoln does like Lincoln references back to McClellan and compares the situation to being similar to what he dealt with when he was commander. And um, I don't know if you guys got the sense that maybe Lincoln had regrets for how long he kept McClellan in and didn't pursue somebody else sooner. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think he did. Because I think you can kind of see that with the way he... It just seems like he pulled the trigger quicker on moving, mm-hmm. um, getting rid of or reshuffling some of the generals. Well, it gets quicker yeah. and quicker and quicker each time. And I, I know I've talked about this before. I think he just became more confident, too, in his yeah. ability to read and assess where the war was at um, and what the you know and yep. what needed to be done. So I think the fact that yeah, I think, I, you know, it's like a coach, you know, you first coach your first year, you're not quite sure how to handle some situations. And the more you coach, the more understanding you get. And then you kind of get an understanding that, you know what, this isn't going to change. You probably have a little bit more leeway um, that first couple of years and what you do down the road because you know that you could see what the outcome is going to be a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think that, and I've, I've made this comparison too. I think one, I do think it was a learning curve for Lincoln too. I mean, this was yeah. obviously the first time anybody had to deal with it. But I think, and I, I think I've made this coaching analogy before too, where it's like one of those situations that I had when I was coaching um, a few years ago, where it's like you have a player make a mistake on the field, and you're like, God, you know, all right, we can't have that. You turn around, you look at your bench. And you're like, all right, don't let it happen again because <laughs> there's nobody on the bench. You can't put anybody else in the game that's going to be as good as a person out there, even though he's screwing up or she's screwing up, you know? So like, I, I definitely had that experience where pull him out. All right. You turn around, you look at your bench. You're like, Burnside hooker. Uh, nope. All right. Um, <laughs> so like, I think there was, you know, until really until grant, there wasn't a situation that Lincoln found himself in where it was like, obviously just go to this person and you're going to be okay. There was no error apparent. Um, so, um, that's one. And two, I think that there was a political angle because you can't forget that McClellan was the highest ranking, the highest, you know, mm-hmm. the most significant Democrat general that, that there was. So yeah. firing him was a little more delicate 
than um, the other generals who were typically more apolitical, if anything. Yeah. Um, There really wasn't a Republican general as much as perhaps Grant and Sherman, but they weren't political yet. Um, But, but McClellan, I think had established himself as a, you know, a Democrat or at least a friend of the Democrats at the time. So I think there were some political elements too, and political fallout most clearly evident in 1864 with the election that Lincoln had to be mindful of. And that's what I think is important about his role as commander in chief is, is still a political position mm-hmm. um, that he had to factor in things like that. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, yeah, McClellan was definitely the political, you know, he's got like Lincoln had to be really careful, but too, it, it probably harkens back to confidence as well. Just not having that kind of like, well, maybe he's the best I've got. And then I think the more he, replace generals and realize like, okay, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I need. This is what needs to be done. Um, You know, like Hooker was definitely the person he needed in that particular situation. He needed aggression. And Burnside just had not had that and they needed the aggression quickly. Um, So then McPherson switches over to what's going on in the East um, with trying to get Vicksburg and this is where um, our friend McClernand comes back again. Um, and he's McPherson's really good at summarizing the key points for what happens during the winter of 1863 during the Vicksburg campaign. Um, you know, like Grant is criticized again for being drunk. Um, McClernand writes directly to Lincoln to tell him this. And I, I can't imagine how that would have made um, Lincoln feel. And, you know, reporters are writing to Lincoln saying Grant's drunk. And, um, McPherson states that Lincoln resisted the pressure to remove Grant. Um, it's kind of timely we're talking about Grant considering the biography of him or um, the three-part miniseries just finished airing last night. Um, and this, I think, like, Lincoln resisting this pressure is a sign of the confidence that he has in keeping generals in place, um, you know, even as opposed to what he had the, a year prior to this. And there's a quote regarding Grant, if I had as my Washington friends who fight battles with their tongues instead of swords far from the enemy demanded of me, Grant would never have been heard from again. So Lincoln, it sounds like he's going, Lincoln's going completely with what he feels is right. And he's not listening to people. And he's basically saying, if I had listened to everybody, Grant would, would be gone. Um, And that's pretty powerful to know that. And the one thing, though, in Grant's favor was these reports that they were getting from Charles Dana, who was the assistant secretary to war, and he was sent west to watch things. Um, And McPherson talks about how Grant managed to get past Vicksburg and the siege began. And there's a really good quote describing why Lincoln liked Grant so much. And this goes back to a theme that we saw earlier in the book. Um, Lincoln had finally found a general who could march his army as fast and light as the enemy. And Elihu Washburn said of Grant, his entire baggage consists of a toothbrush. So that goes back into that theme of where Lincoln was like, we need to move the army quickly. And to do that, we need less baggage. And that's what Grant was doing. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned the miniseries, and I got all my, my mind. My mind started to wonder <laughs> a little bit. And this is just a foreshadowing to a future episode. Everybody out yep. there in real Splitterland. Yeah. No, I think '63 was a bad year for Lincoln. You know, you can't find a general in the East. You know, a guy that was rising, seeming to be the 
the guy in the West who does become the guy in the West and eventually in the East. Grant, he goes through the tough, tough times at Vicksburg. You know, he's got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, Lincoln knew to keep him. So, and yeah, this whole chapter is just frustration of Lincoln yeah. finding finding his bulldog. Um, and little did he know his bulldog was there in Vicksburg. So, well, I think it's like the the frustration he felt, but also how much more um, confident he was as well that you know had he listened to people like say this was a year ago, like a year prior in 1862, had he been listening to those people, he might have got rid of Grant. But because he had that much more under him with the war, he would probably was thinking, I need to keep this guy in and I can't, I can't keep listening. Or if it wasn't for all the incompetence of the other generals, maybe Grant does get the boots. So. True. <laughs> so. Yeah, true. You know, my <laughs> thoughts on that, though, too, are I think that too often – and we've talked a lot about how the East gets kind of overemphasized just because of the scale of the battles. And like there, you know, there's just, there's, you know, there's not like Vicksburg was a siege, which just isn't all that interesting Mm -hmm. sometimes to young learners perhaps. Um, But I, I think there's, you know, I think it's a mistake to feel that Grant staying in the West was like him playing in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he was just waiting to get called up to the majors. Like, I think that he, part of the reason that, he wasn't taken from the West was because the West was extremely important and he yep. didn't leave there until it was pretty well secured. Yeah. Um, he stayed in the West and, you know, once Vicksburg fell and certainly then you go to Chattanooga and uh, Nashville and, you know, like once, once most of Tennessee, you know, is, is in union hands and mm-hmm. they've got the Tennessee river for the most part and the Mississippi river, of course, yeah. like I think he's also the Western theater becomes less important because the battles, you know, the theater is, is much, much farther on its way to being won by the union. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then it becomes more, the, the immediate need is more desperate in the East. But um, sometimes I think that idea is too easy to latch onto that. Like the West is like the, the minor leagues or the training ground for, for generals to get called up to where it really matters. Um, because, you know, him taking Vicksburg and having, you know, the Mississippi completely in union hands was huge yeah um huge to the war right so much more of a significant military victory than any one loss was chancellorsville manassas Mm -hmm. you know antietam if you want to consider that you know um so i think that that was probably playing into lincoln's decision too it's like there's an opportunity cost to bring in grant east and that opportunity cost is you don't have grant in the west yeah you bring up a great point um, and then the documentary, too, which I know we'll talk in a later episode. But, um, you know, Grant, it's not like Grant's an unknown either. It's not like this minor league prospect that you're only briefly hearing about. I mean, in a lot of cases, when he takes Donaldson, he becomes like the first major face of the union. Um, he's in the newspapers. That's how he gets all the damn cigars, for crying out loud, um, because he's pictured with one. So um it gives a little bit more context i think you bring up a great point i think a lot of times because of the way it's been studied the west is seen as the minor leagues and it's like grant doesn't get any fame till all of a sudden he comes out of the blue to the east which wasn't the case at all oh i i mean i completely agree as somebody who um i do focus a little bit more in the western theater i really think it kind of gets downplayed compared to the eastern theater though i mean Chickamauga and Gettysburg are my two favorite battles to study. Um, 
but yeah, there's like, there's a lot going on at West. And I mean, I think to Lincoln, it was really important. Like, I mean, he saw the city of Chattanooga, which we'll get to in the next chapter, um, as being kind of that, like, just as important as Richmond. And he saw Vicksburg, Vicksburg was the key. And uh, like, it's definitely a very important place. And I'm, I'm sure that definitely played into him, you know, Grant staying out there and holding it together for him. Great. Yep. Yep. Um, then the other thing that McPherson gets to, I mentioned this earlier, was of uh, Landingham from Ohio and the issues with him. So as I said, he's a copperhead. And like I also said earlier, he he's a bastard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the Landingham at all. Um, he um, was like just obviously copperhead. So he's not an abolitionist. He doesn't want the war to keep going. He's willing to settle with the Confederacy for whatever they want. And um, so Burnside issues this order that anyone who committed expressed or implied treason would be subject to trial by military tribunal. And sure enough, Vallandigham gets arrested in Mount Vernon, Ohio. And Lincoln justified this um, using public letters much the same way um, McPherson said that a modern president president would use a primetime speech or to have a news conference and Lincoln argued that the whole country was a war zone. Like, just because the war is not happening in Ohio doesn't mean that you can do what Vallandigham did there. And McPherson arg- like says that these letters showcase Lincoln's talents for explaining complex issues in easily understood terms. And Lincoln said, Must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts, whilst I must not touch the hair of a wily agitator who induces him to desert? Like, Vallandigham had stood up in this speech and basically said to soldiers, desert, it's not worth it. Um, And that was brilliant, what Lincoln said. Like, do I go after the soldier or do I go after the guy that's telling him to desert, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. No, no, you didn't at all. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's just Lincoln showing that he could take complexity, simplify it in a manner that people get, and it's really hard to dispute against. Yeah. And I think a lot of his genius in that is like, just knowing what, what the priorities are, you know, like, I mean, are we really going to chase down every single deserter? I mean, if we make this an issue, we're going to bog ourselves down with just the pure logistics of trying to trying to enforce this stuff or do we go for the root of the problem which may be leadership right if there's if there's a leadership problem leading to desertion perhaps that's that's where you kind of have to 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 focus your efforts Mm -hmm. yep agree and then um go into the battle of chancellorsville which as i said there's no mention of hooker getting um a concussion and um, so Hooker blames other f- others for the de- defeat. The commanding generals are blaming him for it. And Lincoln visits him on May the 7th. And he seems to be at this point, he's much more firm with uh, Hooker than what he was with McClellan. And I like that McPherson illustrates that. I think that, again, shows, Nick, what you've said many times with this book, that it shows Lincoln's confidence is is getting up there. And it's it's a lot higher than what it was at the beginning of the Civil War. And then he's lobbying, um, or he, he did have more, like, so, okay, my question was, did he have more faith in Hooker, or was he just more confident in how to deal with his generals? Like, did he want Hooker to stay in and basically say, like, no, you can do this, or was he just more confident? 
For what part now? Okay, so um, this post Chancellorsville. Yeah, this after Chancellorsville, where he's being very encouraging of Hooker. I think he's trying not to change command again so mm-hmm. quick. Probably is part of it. Kind of that balance, you know. Yeah. Because that's what he just. I mean, that'd be real rapid fire. You got rid of you know McClellan and uh, Burnside doesn't last that long, and then you get rid of him right away. So probably he was probably just trying to see if he could salvage who they had. Probably mm-hmm. nobody else either. Because what, you know, there was some other people didn't me turn it down. Um, uh, me didn't want it. Yeah. And then you got like so you got these guys who are complaining and then he offers it to them. Nobody wants it either. So obviously that's gotta be frustrating on top of that. So what are you gonna do? You know he must have saw something in Hooker to start with, so maybe he's hoping he could still salvage it from him, give him another shot. Well, I think you know, at one point he said to Hooker, I gave McClellan many chances. Yeah. I'm willing to give you just as many. I mean, that had to be irritating. These people come, this person sucks, it sucks. All right, you want the job? Reynolds turns it down. I forget. Mead yep. says he doesn't want to do it. I mean, and then at the, it's like, Jesus, what am I supposed to do here? I mean, it's not like we have an endless supply of generals who yeah. had the leadership and experience to do it. So yeah, and I that- think he probably just kept him on because he didn't want to switch again um, is my theory. I, I think so, too. And Lincoln, that this is when Lincoln tells Hooker it's not about Richmond, but it's about getting Lee going after Lee's army. And Lincoln believed there had been a missed opportunity, so he just complete he loses confidence in Hooker at that point. And Hooker ends up resigning on June twenty eighth and he's immediately replaced with Meade. We all know what happens <laughs> on July the first. Meade is about to, as I've mentioned in a few episodes, have the worst first week on a job that you could possibly have. Um the Battle of Gettysburg, very challenging. Um and McPherson does seem to at first hold Meade in a positive light, um, stating that he directed a skillful defense against repeated Confederate attacks, and he inflicted a punishing defeat on Lee's army, which lost a third of its numbers during the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, but I think it's, you know, of course, we've talked about this before with regard to Gettysburg, but, you know, it's the opposite of what we were talking about with Chancellorsville. Like, Nobody out General Lee at Gettysburg, he he made a crucial mistake, like his one crucial mistake um, with Pickett's charge and, you know, can, and failing to see, you know, or to recognize his invinci- his yeah. own, I guess, um, you know, the opposite of invincibility, whatever. He's not invincible, right? Him, yeah. him failing to realize that um, that he's not going to surmount insurmountable odds as much as he's come close in the past. So, um yeah, and I think Lincoln sees that more than anybody, um, and that's another thing that gets lost in history. When we, you know we're we're just kind of conditioned to look at this at Gettysburg as this huge, you know, absolute victory. When Lincoln was the first to really be critical of mm-hmm. Meade, saying like, you know, what a missed opportunity. The war could have essentially been over, um, mm-hmm. which is of course debatable. But at least he recognized that. It wasn't fine generalship that that uh, won that that battle. It was um, amazing performance by officers for sure. Yeah. Um, Chamberlain, of course, being the most notable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you know not not exactly a triumph from a leadership at the highest level standpoint. I mean, I, I'm a I mean, Meade is my favorite Eastern theater 
general. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think his command there was, um, I, I think he doesn't get enough credit for what he did. Mm-hmm. I've really come to respect and see that more in the last year. The more I read about him, the more I read about Gettysburg. Um, and I am a person that I definitely do defend the non-pursual of, of Lee simply because mm-hmm. the, the army of the Potomac was very broken and battered mm-hmm. at the end of those three days. Um, what? And, yeah, go ahead, Nick. I think the thing that has to be driving Lee nuts is Lee's always taking initiative. He makes yeah. two strikes into the north. Theoretically, all the south needs to do is bunker down and kill the will of the north to continue the fight. Yeah. So he's thinking, damn it, from our perspective, we we're really the ones that need to take the initiative because we're trying to keep them as part of the United States of America. And we need to go in there and be the aggressive ones. Mm-hmm. And nobody's doing it. It's always Lee doing it. And that's where it's got to just be irritating beyond belief. Why can Lee do this when he doesn't theoretically even need to do it because they just need to bunker down and protect their borders and keep the North out. And then eventually they could theoretically get what they want. Now, I don't know if it's just as simple as I'm making it sound, but then me just never falls up, never falls up. I mean, he dragged his feet around. I think he does deserve some criticism. To expect him to go immediately after that, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I can see there. And then, you know, you, of course, we've talked about McClellan, um, you know, to the point where it's ridiculous. Um, but, yeah, that's got to be very irritating. Lincoln knew that. He saw that. We need to be the ones on initiative. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because yep. he has to deal with the politics of it more and he's able to see it in a clearer vision um, than a general who's just thinking military tactics. Sorry, I just kind of went on a rant. No, I, I agree, Nick. I think that you know it's kind of the, the old cliche of taking the fight to them. Like even even the 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 more significant victories, you know, Antietam and um, and Gettysburg, it feels like they were still fought on Lee's terms, right? Like like Lee decided, you know, um, Lee's movements. I think you know dictated. Of course, you know we we always talk about the the first few scenes in the movie Gettysburg when. Sam Elliott, you know, was saying like, you know, this is where the battle's going to happen, and he can see it unfolding. Yep, but it's really ground. Lee's. Mo- <laughs> You're right. It's really Lee's movements that are kind of dictating how that's going to go down. Um, and the triumph is that the Union repelled that attack, mm-hmm. right? So they're on. Or they're on yep. the defensive. Even in that victory, they're on the defensive technically. Um, and then you see Grant at Shiloh. Of course, this is far earlier, but you know the second day of Shiloh was largely the fact that he chose to attack in an unconventional time to attack. Um, and then that's, I think what, what makes him, that's what makes him different. Taking Vicksburg was of course, because it's a fortified city, but still it's the taking the fight to them. Um, and that's where I think, uh, you know, Fredericksburg was an example of that backfiring, but so many battles were really dictated by Lee deciding in, in, in where and when the battles take place largely on, on him seeing when to, t- when to take the fight to the union. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Mary, and I, and I do think that, that what does get overlooked from me is that it was his first week on the job. So, mm-hmm. you know, to expect him to, to just come in being the new person immediately and say like, Oh sure. This engagement has a hundred thousand people in it. Let's uh, that's fine. I, you know, I'm the general of the army. It'll, it'll be okay. Like, of course it's not that easy. No. And I mean, he's, he's fighting with an army that he's now in overall command of it is basically the my take on it is he's fighting with the army of the Potomac that Joseph Hooker created. 
mm-hmm. which that's the army that that won Gettysburg. Um, I do like I completely agree with you, Nick, about the frustration that Lincoln was feeling, and I'm sure that's why he wrote Meade that letter saying, "Why did you not pursue?" But then Lincoln, and this is one like thing that um, really illustrates like the empathy that Lincoln had that he took a few steps back and he was like, yeah, I get what Meade is doing. Like he's lost, you know, like Hancock is wounded. Um, Gibbon is wounded. Reynolds is dead. Like there's just so many, like Barlow was wounded. There were so many of them that there were wounded that too. I think Meade felt, you know, I can't ask my army to do any more than what they've given me for these for these three days and Lincoln did want Meade to give that death blow and I get it he's Lincoln is frustrated by this point and Meade is just caught in a bad place like with what has happened um you know and then there's pressure like you know for the next few months for Meade to pursue and um like it's just, I, I do feel bad for Bede in some respects in that way, but I also understand where Lincoln was coming from too. Um, but at the same time as Gettysburg has happened, like Lincoln is overjoyed by this um, triumph at Vicksburg. Like Grant has taken Vicksburg. He's got the Mississippi River for the Union. And um, Lincoln said Vicksburg surrendered to General Grant on July the 4th. Now, if General Meade can complete his work so gloriously begun so far by the literal or substantial destruction of Lee's army, the rebellion will be over. Um, and then Meade holds a council with Lincoln and Halleck and they become upset over that. And I do agree with, um, like, as I said, I do agree with Meade for the decision that he made right after Gettysburg. Um, and then he refers to Grant as the general that did try. And, um, that makes me think like maybe, you know, like McPherson at this point kind of starts, I don't know how much McPherson likes Meade. Like I know he, McPherson doesn't seem to like Burnside or Hooker and he starts to see like uh, the way he starts talking about Meade at this point, but he holds Grant in high regard throughout the whole book. I don't know if you two noticed that or not. I did. Yeah. But I think that's not uncommon, you know, in civil war writing. I think that that's, yeah. yeah holding, you know, you know, and I think when you look at Grant, the miniseries, like, um, which we're going to get to, yep. of course. Uh, but the marketing for that was like, Grant is a story of contradictions. He's looked at as a drunk and as a hero and as a butcher and as a savior. It's largely positive. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, like exclusively positive. So, spoiler alert. Well, I think, too, Lincoln and Grant, I mean, it's probably the best relationship he kind of had with the general. Um, you know, they were able to sit down, talk. He got somebody who was, you know, basically doing what he felt needed to be done you know both of them seem they had a good working relationship and then you know the books focused in on lincoln and his general so mm-hmm. i think naturally grant's mm-hmm. going to be yeah. portrayed in a positive light oh, here exactly um so that ends chapter seven and we're on to chapter eight which is called the heaviest blow yet dealt to the rebellion which is something to do with grant as we're going to see so this chapter starts in july of 1863 after uh, gettysburg and vicksburg um, starts off with uh, McPherson discussing the draft in New York. He also discusses um, French intervention, which um, was Lincoln's major foreign policy. Um, and just he didn't want any kind of foreign intervention during the war. And the Confederacy was kind of starting to do some of that. 
and um, the uh, the major battle that is discussed in this, there's two of them. There's um, the Battle of Chickamauga and the battles for Nashville. And it starts off with this difficulty he's having with getting Rosecrans to move, which Rosecrans is kind of becoming like the McClellan of the West. Um, there's a really interesting story in this chapter about the Lightning Brigade, um, which... Um, has to do with the Spencer repeating rifle. And I think it's a great way that McPherson has illustrated Lincoln's love of technology. Like Lincoln was very into science and technology and all that. Um, he's the only president to hold a patent, I think. hope I'm getting that fact correct. Yeah, that is correct. Yes. Um, so anyway, Lincoln had got to try out the Spencer repeating rifle before they started issuing it to the soldiers. And McPherson says that um, the Lightning Brigade um, was um, involved in the Battle of Chickamauga, like, McPherson argues that had Lincoln not okayed that Spencer repeating rifle, there may not have been a lightning brigade. So, you know, I thought that was really cool. I made a note in the book at this part, the image of Lincoln, like somewhere in DC shooting off these guns. Right. Um, is just like, yeah, that's awesome. I want Spielberg to do a sequel to Lincoln. Um, well, I guess he couldn't. A, a prequel. prequel to Lincoln. Yeah. A prequel to Lincoln. <laughs> a sequel. And I want this scene in there where Daniel Day-Lewis is out there trying out these new guns. That would be... I, I was thinking that, too, just that that image of Lincoln giving... I mean, not that... I mean, not at all, like, a gun person, but at the time, like, that technology was very... probably advanced. And for Lincoln to try that out and say, yeah, we need to issue this to the soldiers... And then to have something like the Lightning Brigade come along, that's I, I, I really like how McPherson tied that into his writing here. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that that's a great example of um, taking, and Spielberg did this brilliantly in the, in the film, taking specific stories um, or specific instances from Lincoln's life to paint a picture of him as a whole person. Um, the two incidents I'm thinking of specifically are him telling the Ethan Allen story, mm-hmm. which which is a story that he really enjoyed telling, and him talking about Euclid and geometry and, you know, like those are two things that like very short, relatively short scenes where not a huge amount of dialogue, but like you get that vision into who Lincoln was as a person. And I think that particular scene with the guns would have done the same thing. Like you see him like super like excited like a kid in a candy store in a way where he's just like you know just you can just see his brain firing and like this is just just so cool like just a really small incident in the grand scheme of his presidency but you can kind of see like who he was as a human was like super interested in this kind of stuff and like you know taking some time off of sitting in the telegraph office to like kind of get geeked up about some tech so um i think that that could have worked or would work if you did a prequel yeah I agree. It was it was just really that was one of my favorite parts of of this chapter. Um, and then it gets into so he talks about the Battle of Chickamauga, which ends up turning into a siege. Um, and he does mention the Rock of Chickamauga, um, General Thomas, which I thought was pretty cool because um, he's one of my favorites too. And then Lincoln is also having to deal with Burnside. Um, again, this isn't something that like if you study the Civil War. Um, like, I mean, obviously you might know about this, but anybody coming into it, you know, like, you know, Gettysburg, you know, Vicksburg, like you recognize those things, but you might not know as much about what's going on in, um, in like in the Western theater with Burnside, who's near Knoxville and Lincoln writes him this telegram. He never sends it, but he said, it's 
Burnside ends up going the wrong way for some reason. And Lincoln writes him, it's your incomprehensible action makes me doubt whether I am awake or dreaming. But he never sends it. You know, and I think some of that is Lincoln's sense of humor coming through too when he's when he's angry. But the fact that he can take a step back and not send that is really something. You know, it's like he gets his anger out and he's like, okay, redo. Sends him something that's a little bit more diplomatic. But still, I thought that was another... I like that McPherson is illustrating that side of Lincoln, that Lincoln did get angry at times, did write things that might have been not so nice to send, but that he was able to take a step back and not send it. Um, And then the other cool thing that he talks about in this chapter is... um, getting the Stanton and his idea to get all these troops to Chattanooga in like record speed. And he got them there in just like, it was really, really quickly that he managed to get them there. Someone was like, no, it's going to take six weeks and six weeks. And Stanton's like, no, I can get them there in a week. And that's pretty close to what happened. And at the same time as these troops from the east, which were Hooker's troops, are getting to Chattanooga, um, Sherman's troops are coming down to Chattanooga, too. And this is when you have Lincoln's comment about Rosecrans, where he's confused and stunned like a duck head on the head. Which is just <laughs> it's brilliant, Lincoln. Um, and that's when Lincoln creates this military division of the Mississippi, which Grant is put in charge of. And Rosecrans ends up being replaced by General Thomas. And you have the battles for Chattanooga happening November 23rd to 25th, 1863. And this is three Union armies all fighting together against Bragg's Confederate army. And it's they end up obviously winning it, driving the Confederates back into Georgia. And Tennessee is now secured for the Union which, as you said, Jeremy, was the huge thing for Lincoln to get that security um, for, like, to have that before he even thinks about bringing Grant to the East. And meanwhile, over in the West, you have Lincoln is losing faith very quickly in Meade, which at this point, I don't blame him. Like, Meade's not doing (laughs) what he should be. And... McPherson does make a really good point about East versus West at this point, and this might have played into a little bit about Meade, how he was. Um, Newspapers were constantly looking over shoulders in the East, and there is less glare of publicity in the West. I thought that was a really great great thing that uh, McPherson talked about there. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think to me, I kind of just feel that Meade was more defensive-minded, though, um, than anything. His instinct was to be on the defensive let them come to us fight Mm -hmm. them um which you know from a military tactic and the way technology and stuff was i mean that was the better position to be in unfortunately when you're the north trying to bring them back in you didn't necessarily have that luxury all the time and then obviously yeah you know the pressure of having the media there that probably maybe amplified that a little bit more and then, you know, Meade's probably justified to being that way, too. You know, he was there for Fredericksburg. He saw what happened. Um, and he's seen some of this terrible tragedy that's taken place when you go on offensive. I mean, he's at Gettysburg. He sees that, you know, what the defensive can do on the third day, um, you know, to a major charge. So I think part of that's understandable. Um, yeah, I think that's the gene. That's where Lincoln's 
genius comes out where like the, the war wasn't you know battles are one with that military you know idea like they're the idea of like we have a better chance of winning this battle from a defensive position whereas lincoln's goal was to win the war knowing that the the enemy was the south's will to fight the enemy was the south's resources and the enemy was just the number of people that they had um much more so than like defensive positions and forts and things like that um so, you know, with Lincoln seeing that, you know, this is what makes Grant emerge as the the solution because Grant also saw that. Um, and Grant also knew that the, that a war of attrition was going to be the way to win. Um, so I think that the difference isn't necessarily about who's smarter militarily as much as, you know, our goal is not to win battles. Our goal is to win the war. Um, and, of course, you want to win as bad, many battles as possible. But this is where, you, you know, you could reignite the Gettysburg and pursuit debate or, you know, um, McClellan not knowing if he had enough people to, to attack on the peninsula. Well, what if you attack and it's a huge battle and, and you don't necessarily win? People are going to be really sweating. You got to, you got, how close did they get to Richmond? We lost this many people, whatever else. So um, I think the difference or, or what, what really shows here is that Lincoln's focus on knowing how to win the war and he's just trying to find somebody to, to, to do it. Um, not necessarily just a, a good battlefield commander, but someone who can lead a campaign and who can lead a, mm-hmm. a theater and can end up winning the wars. I think what they're looking for. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that uh, McPherson discusses is the um, African-American troops. And um, he specifically references the 54th Massachusetts, the anniversary, which we are recording on May the 28th, the anniversary of them leaving for South Carolina from Boston, was today in 1863. So that's pretty cool that we're recording on the anniversary of that. Um, But he mentions that Grant wrote Lincoln to say that it works doubly weakening the enemy and strengthening us. Um, And Grant had hearty support for the policy of arming the Negro. This with the emancipation of the Negro is the heaviest blow yet given the Confederacy by arming them. We have added a powerful ally. So I really like that. Um, McPherson discusses this. He talks about the meeting that he has with Frederick Douglass. Um, and he also talks about what happened at Fort Wagner, unfortunately, with the 54th Massachusetts. And um, I really found it, the whole discussion about Douglass quite fascinating. And I'm glad that McPherson touched on that. And um, then he gets back into with Meade and how things are going there which is not very good. And he talks about the Gettysburg Address in November and also Lincoln's Proclamation of Amnesty and Reconstruction, um, which allows full pardon and restoration of property except slaves um, as long as the Confederates were an oath of allegiance. And he has more measures put in place that will help weaken the Confederacy. And the chapter takes us to the end of 1864, and um, I I enjoyed this one, too. I think my favorite one overall so far has been Chapter 7. Um, but I also, Chapter 8 was a really great discussion, too. Um, so do you guys have any thoughts at all? Yeah, I thought Chapter 8 does a nice job of going into the complexities of being commander-in-chief. You know, when you're a general, all you got to think about is military tactics. Um, commander-in-chief, especially in a democracy, you can't separate the military from politics, they go hand in hand. And the chapter really starts out talking about this, you know, for example, Lincoln wanted to send some troops into Texas 
because he's worried about the mm-hmm. French presence in Mexico. They have a presence there. Maybe they'll end up backing the Confederates. So he's seeking foreign policy wise. Rosecrans, he wants to get rid of them, but the election's coming up. Um, so he knows he can't just dump them because there's going to be political consequences to this. Mm-hmm. So he holds on to them for a little while longer, which he did with some other generals. And he has to get creative, too, with some others on where he moves them and how he goes about it because of the politics of these things. And I think that's something that a lot of military generals struggle to understand when dealing with the president throughout wars. And I think some of our more successful generals um, throughout American history have been the ones that understand the obstacles that a president faces, acknowledges that and accepts it and works with them to find you know, a solution to the conflict at hand. And I think that's where Grant really excels mm-hmm. um, with all that, too. And then this also goes into sometimes, you know, political decisions are made to benefit the military. For example, McPherson talks about the 10% plan to get the southern states back into the Union. And he makes the argument that Lincoln did this to really weaken the South. Because as soon as these states say that they're part of the Union, you could establish a new government. And then that's going to weaken the will of the South because, you know, theoretically, they've just lost one of their states. So, you know, the complexities of being a commander in chief um, is very unique. And it really goes hand to hand because you can't ignore the politics and the democracy, Um, especially, you know, um, when you're in an election year like Lincoln was. So Mm -hmm. I loved how he talked about that in that chapter. I enjoyed that part of it, too. Um, Jeremy, do you have any thoughts at all? No, no, I agree. Um, I think that the, just the book as a whole, the, the parts that I think are when when the book emerges as, I mean, it's all fun, and it, of course it's Lincoln, so it's fun to read about, but the, the parts that, that separate this book is, is its whole premise, which is focusing on his role as commander-in-chief. So I think the sections or segments that it really goes into that specific role are when it's at its best. Mm-hmm. So that brings us into um, the final chapter we're discussing, discussing tonight, which is Chapter 9. If it takes three more years, <laughs> um, and that again is another quote regarding the Civil War, obviously. So this begins in 1864, um, and it talks about how um, Elihu Washburn was, he was one of the ones behind this bill to revive the rank of Lieutenant General, and it ends up being Grant that gets that. So that's pretty awesome. And Lincoln again reiterates that the objective was rich or is not Richmond, but Lee's army. So he's making sure that Grant knows this right off the bat. And McPherson says Grant got the message. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Um, and he McPherson tells the story, and I'm sure most of us know it, of arriving at the train station. Um, like Grant, like Grant arrives there, nobody's there to greet him, and um, he ends up going to the hotel, like the Willard Hotel, and checking in, and they don't know who he is, and he signs his name, and the clerk is finally like, "Oh, here, I have a much better room for you. Um, let me take you to it." And just his um, his time at like when he went to the White House, and he ends up standing on the couch because he's like the center of attention, and we all know Grant was just not into that at all. Um, so he's there at the White House and he's, um, you know, he's now East. And Grant also at this point, um, 
All, uh, real quick, yep. I love that story of how mm-hmm. he arrives there, and then he's got to stand on the couch. Yeah, this is a spoiler for the Grant series. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna say anything. Never mind, because you haven't watched it yet. I've, I mean, I, I know some of what happens, but yeah, I'm gonna watch it soon. So, well, <laughs> you're gonna be disappointed. I guess the cat's out of the bag as far as that's concerned. But they don't. They missed an opportunity in the third episode to do, or maybe it's the second episode. I can't remember which one. Um to reenact this scene. I know, because it was actually yeah. Seward who led Grant over to the couch, and he was like, here, get up on the couch. And Grant, who I'm pretty sure was really introverted, was probably like, I'm not having any of this. But he still, he has to get up on the couch, right? And he's the center of attention, and that's just, I mean, that's not at all how Grant was. Like, he, mm-hmm. talking about a general who, the main thing he carried with him was his toothbrush. Every time I hear Grant on the couch, I think of Tom Cruise on Oprah. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> what? Well, I think I think the the that tells two things about Grant, but the second one I think is more important. Like it, the story is often told of him signing into that hotel and them not knowing it's Grant. Yep, it's often told just the stress that he didn't wear his military, you know, uh, insignia or whatever his, you know, all of the the flub dubs as Lincoln may have called them. Like you know, he just wore a basic officer's coat. And that's it. So he didn't he didn't wear the, you know, the stars for the general or whatever, you know, anything too crazy. The sword, you know, he was very and I think people kind of stop there. But I think what's even more telling about his character is that he didn't really care that they did. You know, it's not like he's like, you don't know who I am. He's like, oh, OK, you know, you didn't, you know, don't have a room for me. That's cool. You're like, whatever. you know, like, like, like his humility was like, not only did they not know him, he was totally fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's. I think that's classic Grant right there. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was McClellan, it would like, I mean, we don't need to get into it, but it'd be a whole lot of, it'd be the opposite to that. Um, so the, the other thing that I liked about this chapter was that, um, McC- McClellan would have never gotten a couch. I'd been like, wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I need seven couches. I need yeah. seven couches. What is this? I need a silk couch. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a short joke, but it kind of bad. <laughs> Um, the other thing McPherson gets back to is just, um, you know, the African-Americans being in the army and just what's happening to them. And he does talk about Fort Pillow and that it was deliberate murder of black, of black troops and just how Lincoln had to deal with that. Um, he said blood cannot restore blood and government should not act for revenge. So clearly this was a controversial issue for Lincoln. Like, what do you do when this Confederate general has has come in and deliberately murdered these black troops and Lincoln I'm sure had to walk a very fine line with that and I can't imagine how this book really um, brought to the surface for me like how difficult that situation must have been for him I, I don't think it's something that gets touched on enough with Lincoln but I'm glad McPherson touched on it in this in this book and then he goes back to talking about um, just Grant, like Lincoln is starting to defer more to Grant for military matters that fell within his responsibilities of being general in chief. And Grant understood that as commander in chief, he had to consider things from a political standpoint as well. And McPherson really highlights there why these two work so well together. And I really um, appreciated that just this understanding it was almost like a silent understanding these two had like lincoln was like okay you're the military guy you deal with it and grant knew okay there's there's politics involved and i'll let you deal with that side of it so i think that's why they work so well together 
Um, and then he talks about just how Grant is, um, like, he refers to him as being, like, a bulldog um, in relation to being the fighting in the wilderness, that he just, he is the grit of a bulldog, and once he gets the teeth in, nothing can shake him off, and it is the dogged per- pernicity of Grant that wins. And McPherson gives a very interesting discussion on how Grant saw victory and defeat, and he didn't think in terms of that, which I thought was um, really interesting. Like, Nick, did you have any thoughts on that part where he was talking about Grant just not thinking victory or defeat? It was just going after Lee? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of blending in with the Grant miniseries because they hit on this point. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think, you know, to me, they have, he, you know, the crater happens at Petersburg. Him and Lincoln sit down and they talk for like a five-hour meeting, right? And then to me, like I was just envisioning like these two were just able to work, like to just have a good working relationship. I, I think it had mm-hmm. to be nice for Lincoln. I'm sure Lincoln was probably a little agitated with what was going on. Um, but you know, I'm sure grants are explaining they're working together. And then, you know, out of that crater, um, incident out of that meeting, you know, then the war kind of falls after this and he kind of stays the course. And to me, I I guess what I like to think is that it was a productive meeting, a good meeting, a talk. They're on the same page. How are we going to do this? Yeah. Not like, you know, what are you going to do different or something? It was more of a, a true collaboration um, between the commander in chief and the general in charge. Mm-hmm. That's what I like to imagine in my head. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll never know because there's really no um, notes from that meeting, but. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the chapter just basically talks about um, there's the Republican nomination. Um, Fremont ends up, he's a formal, former general and pol- political rival. He's nominated to run for president, just all the stuff that, and we've covered this in episodes, what Lincoln was dealing with that, how McClellan ends up uh, basically coming back and running against him. Um, He also talks about um, Jubal Early raiding or threatening to raid Washington, D.C., and just what happens at Fort Stevens, which is um, when apparently Oliver Wendell Holmes tells Lincoln, get down, you fool, when Lincoln is at Fort Stevens. That's another thing in the Lincoln prequel movie that we want to happen. That that needs to happen in the movie, yeah. that part. Um, and he ends off the chapter by talking about how Early ends up burning Chalmersburg. And this, Lincoln, this meeting that Lincoln and Grant had on July the 31st, 1864. And they put, at that point, Sheridan is put in charge of what would become the army of the Shenandoah. And I really like how the chapter ends off with just Lincoln not having any confidence in Sheridan at all. And I mean, if you're a civil war geek, like I am, you're like, Oh, wait for it. Like it's, you know, I don't know. I really liked, I, I really like how McPherson ends off with stuff like that. Cause it's like, if you don't, if this is like your introduction to the civil war, you're like, Oh, what happens with that but if you're you know into this like been studying it for a while you're just like oh yeah that's we'll see how that plays out you know it's just it's interesting that lincoln he's going into it he's like doesn't have confidence in sheridan and that's just kind of how the chapter ends 
Yeah, little cliffhanger, yep. foreshadowing kind yep. of a combination there, yeah. Yep, so that is chapter 7, 8, and 9 of Tried by War by James McPherson. We have two parts of the book left to, the, to discuss, chapter 10 and the epilogue, and then just our wrap-up of what we thought overall. So before we move on to our um, weekly segments, do you two have anything to add? No. Look okay. forward to finishing the book and discussing it in the future episode. All right. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So, of the people, by the people. Uh, did we read our most recent review? I don't know, but it's a five star, so why not? Right. Oh. Why don't you go for it, Nick? You're typically a review reader. Oh, dang it. I can't see the whole title. <laughs> Living Among Eastern, the dot, 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 from Honest Huff, May 15th. My favorite thing about the, this five-star review, by the way, is my favorite thing about this podcast is the wide range of Lincoln topics covered. From Abe's dog Fido to his relationship with his generals, you can't predict what aspects of Lincoln's life will come next. This keeps it interesting and fresh. I haven't heard a podcast solely about his honesty, so I hope to hear whether Abraham was always 100% candid as a politician and a lawyer. I'm sure that once in a while he said what he what he had to to win cases and win the war. But was Honest A part myth, even slightly? All three contributors are necessary for the success of the podcast. Each one brings a different perspective that enriches the show. I don't know how you were supposed to have a podcast about a past president without comparing and contrasting him to the current president. Don't change the thing. Uh, Nick Stangy is the greatest top rail splitter ever. <laughs> Shut oh, up, Nick. <laughs> that last uh, power was out of there. Uh, the entire title of that uh, uh, review was Living Among Eastern Theater Battlefields. Okay. Oh. Thank you for the five-star wow. review. If you have Honest review- Huff. Honest Huff. That... The reviewer was called Honest Huff is the reviewer's name. If you haven't reviewed us, please do. Uh, head on <laughs> over to uh, iTunes. Um, we even read the bad ones on there. We prefer that you give us a five-star, then badmouth us. But <laughs> either way, we'll read it on there. I guess we're not on there, but we'll read it on the podcast. <laughs> okay, Jeremy. On you're cloud. Um, well, I'm going to choose a social media post. Um, that's going to kind of reference our an upcoming episode, maybe our next one, maybe within two. Um, we have they're coming soon to a Rail Splitter episode near you. Nathan Robb of the Robb Collection, uh, who wrote the book Hunting for History, is going to be on the show. So I'm going to highlight a recent post on their social media at Rob, excuse me, at Rob Collection, R A A B Collection. Um, they have uh, they are a historic documents dealer. Uh, they have a document that they tweeted about. Uh, during a time when Abraham Lincoln needed support for his Emancipation Proclamation more than ever, he wrote a composer thanking him for sending a copy of the new Emancipation March. And it's a signed letter from Abraham Lincoln that is available in the Rob Collection for the low, low price of $70,000. Wow. Um, so that's just a little bit of an allusion, a hint, a foreshadowing to our episode with uh, Nathan Robb of the Lob- Rob Collection and the writer of Hunting for History. Um, and I think that's going to be a pretty fascinating conversation where we talk about um, tracking down historic documents. We'll, of course, highlight the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. 
Um, but I think that you'll enjoy that, where we'll hear about this document and many others. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that one. Okay, so mine comes from uh, Twitter, so social media again. And it is from my friend Darren, who lives in Massachusetts. And he tweeted today, happy 54th Massachusetts Day. And he's got a picture of himself um, with the Shaw Memorial, um, the 54th Massachusetts in Boston. So just remembering them today. So thank you for that, Darren. And you can follow Darren on Twitter at, at Darren J. Weeks. So thank you for remembering the 54th today, which we are recording on the anniversary of them leaving Boston. Sweet. Do we got it this week in Lincoln? Because I have one if we don't. Go. Man, that was a big, you must not have anything. <laughs> uh, go. I have a department group chat uh, with other U.S. history teachers. One Jen Stark sent a collection of shirts that are coming out. This is probably for Fourth of July or maybe. Oh, just I've general. seen this. I've seen this. So they are historical figures. The majority of them are presidents, and then they change their last names uh, to represent drinking. So we have Ben Drinken, George Sloshington. We have Abe Drinken, and then Thomas Drunkerson. And then Dwight Eisen hangover. <laughs> so <laughs> Woodrow wasted. And then they're like wearing holding like a shot glass and like wearing a headband, the majority of them, um, an American headband and American shades. So um I think we will be wearing this on Fridays once we go back to school. I think it's appropriate. <laughs> as an administrator, would you agree that you, would you give us the green light to get those as department shirts? I'll give Sometimes. you the green light. <laughs> Sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> All right. So you basically have given us the green. <laughs> Just wear it, Nick. <laughs> Just wear it. Anyway, so um, I think that is our episode for this week. So we will be back with you again soon. Uh, just a little bit of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Probably going to be getting to that Grant documentary soon just because it's fresh in everybody's minds. Um, but yeah, we've got a lot of exciting stuff ahead for you guys. So, um, any parting thoughts, Nick or Jeremy? No, uh, no, no. I think, uh, thanks for participating in the book club and we're excited for the upcoming episodes we got for y'all. Yep. All right. Well, until next week, uh, keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see y'all again soon.